The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and you can keep a finger or notes or whatever in Matthew 2, because that's the main passage I want to look at and go through, survey of Matthew 2. But before I get there, I do want to read uh, a couple of key passages in the Old Testament that will set the stage for Matthew 2 and understanding properly with a fuller context the meaning of Jesus' birth, which is incredibly clouded, as we know, in our world today, where people don't really know what the meaning of Christmas is, as it's shrouded in materialism and legend and myths and TV movies and whatever else, where all the focus is taken off Jesus Christ. Not just the focus taken off Jesus Christ, Jesus is totally eliminated from the Christmas story in so many ways. So, that's why we have such a great privilege as a church to always go back to the plumb line of the truth regarding the ultimate priorities in life. The most important person in the world is Jesus Christ, and He is the meaning of Christmas. Uh, yesterday I was shopping at Target and checked out, and the, leaving the checker said, Have a nice day. Happy holidays. And I said, Merry Christmas. And a similar thing happened last week. And uh, as soon as I said Merry Christmas, she, she got all excited. She goes, Oh, and Merry Christmas to you too. And uh, that happened like two or three times this week at Target. So they must have some policy. It's like, you can say, you must say Happy Holidays. But if they do say uh, Merry Christmas, I guess you'll, you can say it back. And so, like two or three times that kept happening this week. Happy Holidays. Happy Holidays. Merry Christmas. Oh, Merry Christmas to you too. I have a tree and lights too. Uh, it's like, so it's kind of funny. Um, but just that shrouding it so subtly, little by little. What is it really about? It's not just Happy Holidays. It's not the happy spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, so we have this great privilege to go to God's Word. So let's do that together. The title today of Matthew 2, just worship the King. Really the pinnacle of Matthew 2. We're going to look at that right in the middle of that passage. Before we do, open your Bible. Uh, three Old Testament passages I want to read first, just briefly. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You know the story. God created everything in the beginning. Adam and Eve, who were real people, disobeyed and fell into sin. God punished them, gave them consequences, consequences to them that they, they would also pass on to all of their descendants, which includes all of us. We reap the consequences that were given to Adam and Eve in so many ways. But consequences also fell on the head of Satan himself and his involvement in the fall of Adam and Eve. And so God's dishing out consequences in Genesis 3, 13 through 19. He's giving consequences to Adam, Eve, Satan, and actually the animal, the snake that was involved. And while he's giving uh, consequences uh, to the serpent, the actual animal is being punished in verse 14. And then in verse 15, God punishes Satan, who was actually inside of that snake. And listen to this. This is the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. And it comes on the heels of egregious sin that separated humanity from a holy God, but yet God brings the solution to this separation from a holy God, and it's in verse 15 of chapter 3, and it's in reference to the coming Messiah who would be born and come to save sinners and conquer Satan, and God says to Satan, who's inside the serpent, uh, I'm going to put enmity, or I'm going to put hatred between you, Satan, and the woman, starting with Eve, and then eventually a descendant of Eve. I'm going to put hatred between you and the woman, you and humanity, you and the blessed line of Eve that would culminate in Jesus the Messiah. I'm also going to put enmity and hatred, Satan, between your descendants 
and one of the woman's descendants, her seed. You will be enemies. He, singular masculine pronoun in the Hebrew, can only refer to one person, and it is a man. It is a human. Whoever this descendant of Eve is, who will be at war with Satan, it's a man. And it's a human man. And what he does is amazing. When he comes, when he is born, he will crush the head of Satan, spiritually speaking. He will destroy and undermine all of Satan's authority and power as the destroyer and the liar and the murderer. Well, who is this he that's going to crush Satan's head? Well, no ordinary human could do that. has the ability to crush Satan's head. This has to be somebody beyond an ordinary human. But it is a human. It is a he. It is a man. It's the Messiah. He shall crush the head of Satan and you... Satan will be allowed to hurt him, to bruise him on the heel, not destroy him, but hurt him. And that's referring to Jesus Christ, his coming. He came to destroy Satan. That's what the book of Hebrews chapter 2 said. This is an explicit messianic prophecy, the first prophecy in the Bible about the purpose of why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world for several reasons, and one of them was to destroy the works of the devil, to crush his works, and to save sinners from their own sin and from Satan himself and even from death. And this is 4,000 years before Jesus was born, this prophecy was given. And then really you go on through the rest of the entire Bible and you've got prophecy after prophecy adding to this, Genesis 3.15, as the corpus or the composite picture of what the Messiah would be like and why He would come and all these prophecies giving details of where He would come from and who He would be and how He would rule and His very purpose for coming are explicated all throughout the entire Old Testament culminating in the New Testament so that when the time came 4,000 years later of a Messiah in Israel to be born, the Jews in that area and anybody that was conversant in Old Testament Scripture should have known clearly God's plan of how He would crush Satan, save sinners from this evil, wicked world. It was God's master plan, not just in history, but for all eternity. So there's the first Messianic prophecy of the coming Messiah. Now look at flip over to Exodus chapter 20. And this is a couple thousand years later with Moses, God's great leader, and he gives him the Ten Commandments. And while he's giving him the Ten Commandments, I just wanted to read the first of the Ten Commandments so we don't forget it. It's basic. This is fundamental. But it's so significant, especially in uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. What's going on there? So this is the God of the universe. God of the universe. The triune God of the universe. There's a plurality in the one God of the universe. God is one we believe in monotheism, one God. There is one God, this entity, this being, there's one God, but there is a plurality in this one God. And the plurality is that this one God is made up of three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even in the, your Hebrew text in Exodus chapter 20, tells us about the oneness and the monotheism of the true God, but also the plurality that is inherent in the very being of God. And that's in His name, is the Lord. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord. I am literally, I am Yahweh. My personal name is Yahweh, Lord. In the New Testament, Jesus is called Lord. That is not by chance, coincident, or mistake. That is deliberate. Jesus is called Yahweh in the New Testament. Wow. And the word for God in Hebrew is Elohim. It's a plural name for God. I mean, literally, you could translate it as God's but it's not referring to more than one God. It's referring to one God who has a plurality in His nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is one. He is three. The triune God of the universe is speaking to Moses. This is the one true God. He's an invisible God. He has no body. He's bigger than the universe. 
Nothing could contain Him, physically speaking. So this triune, infinite, almighty, eternal, holy God of the universe spoke to Moses as it were face to face. And this is what He said in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then He begins to give the Ten Commandments. And the first couple I want to highlight, uh, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before Me. There are no other gods before Me. If you worship anything other than the true God, that is blasphemy, that is idolatry, that warranted the death penalty from God's point of view. No other gods. Uh, verse 4, Jesus in the New Testament is called God. Uh, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water or under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. God is a jealous God. You don't worship anything other than the true God because God is jealous. And like I said, it goes on in Exodus to say that God says, if you worship anything other than the true God, you deserve the death penalty. That person must die. Uh, now go over to Isaiah 43. One more passage I want to look at. Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40 all the way through 66, it magnifies and exalts the nature of this eternal, amazing God of the universe. It makes many prophecies regarding the, of the coming Messiah. And in Isaiah 43, I want to just look at verse 3 and 10. This is God talking about himself, a little biography, and in Isaiah 43, verse 3, God is talking to the Israelites, the Jews, his precious people at that time, verse 1, O Israel, verse 3, he says about himself, self, I am Yahweh your God, your personal God, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, notice God, Yahweh, he is Savior. God says He is the Savior. Go down to verse 10. You are my witnesses. He's talking to the Israelites. Declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. I am. Jesus called that. He called Himself that many times. I am. And God says in the Old Testament, I am. I am He. Before me there was no God formed. There will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord and there is no Savior besides me. That is key. Because in Matthew chapter 1 at the birth of Christ, uh, God tells Joseph to name his child Yeshua. God saves. Your baby will be the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus means Savior. And here God says, I am the only Savior. Which means Jesus is God. That's the Christmas story. So just a little bit of Old Testament background going into Matthew 2. So let's go ahead and look at Matthew 2 now. As I said, I want to run through this familiar passage, but every time I go through this year after year, uh, I always get another jewel or another blessing or something else a little deeper or from a different perspective that I learn or contemplate that I'm blessed by for the first time in my life, even after all these years and preaching on it many times. It just It never gets old because Scripture is so rich. It is living. It is inexhaustible. You can just go back to the same passage over and over and over again. And that's one of the testimonies to know that the Word of God is different than any other book. It is living it is active, it is dynamic, it is the very Word of God. It is transforming. So let's go ahead and look at this true Christmas story. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 23. I did break it up into four sections just to kind of help you if you were taking notes, uh, if you find it helpful. The, the whole emphasis here is that Jesus is King. Jesus is showcased as King from beginning to end all the way throughout Matthew, and that's no exception in chapter 2. Jesus is highlighted as King from positive perspective, from comparison perspective, from historical perspective, from miraculous perspective. So the four points here are four different ways that Jesus is seen and showcased as the true King. 
primarily in contrast to a false king in chapter 2. But point number one is that verses 1 through 8, and that is Herod hates the king. Herod hates the king, verses 1 through 8. Let's go ahead and look at it. The birth of the Messiah, who's the true king. Uh, Follow along with me as I read through and uh, just comment on verses 1 through 8 regarding the true Christmas story that culminates with worship of the king. Verse 1 in Matthew 2 says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, or in other words, get this, or you won't believe what happened. That's what behold means, a very important word. Get this, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Wow. In verse 1, now after Jesus was born. Now after Jesus was born, I believe that Matthew is explicitly writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, picking up where Luke left off. If you read the birth account of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 1 and 2, Luke gives the earlier version. Luke's version comes before Matthew 2. So if you want to read it chronologically, you read Luke first. Because Luke is explicit. Because the shepherds came on the very day that Jesus was born. That is not true in Matthew chapter 2. The Magi come after Jesus had already been born. And we know that from several reasons, several words, and even the context of the passage. So Luke comes first. It highlights the day Jesus was born. Uh, he was placed in a, an animal trough. Could have been in, the, in a cave where they kept animals or some kind of makeshift stable or in the side of a hill as they did commonly back then on the day that he was born. And the shepherds came to see and worship him. And so time went by after that, Luke tells us. Uh, a week went by and Jesus was circumcised after eight days. And then Mary was purified in the temple after 14 days in accordance with the Old Testament requirements. And so some time has gone by and he goes from being an infant, Rephos in Luke chapter 2, to now being a Paideia, a grown-up little boy, or just a little older than an infant child. So this is probably a few months or several months maybe after Jesus was born this happens. And Luke tells us that Jesus was placed in this trough, probably around animals, and here Jesus is actually in a house. So some transitions have taken place. So it's a little further along, and that's why Matthew's words are significant in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born. Now, after the account of Luke where he explained when Jesus was born, here's what else happened that was amazing. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and he says Bethlehem of Judea because there was actually a Bethlehem up in Galilee. But So this was a specific uh, Bethlehem down in Judea that was in accord with Scripture. There were qualifications of where the Messiah would be born. had to be exacting had to be Bethlehem of Judea. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Herod the king, also known as Herod the Great. This is the first of many Herods in the New Testament. Uh, this was the greatest Herod of them all. He was conniving, he was manipulative, he was power. Uh, at this time, Herod is ruling later on in his life just before his death. Historically, we believe he died about 4 B.C., Herod died four years before Christ was born. Hmm, how did, how's that possible? Well, because somewhere along the line in history, they messed up the calendar. Uh, so that Jesus actually wasn't born in 0 B.C. or 1 B.C., just so you know. Um, so Herod ruled in this area from about 40 B.C. to 4 B.C. He secured power. He was an evil, wicked, maniacal, twisted, bloodthirsty tyrant. Absolutely vicious. And the older he got, the worse he got. 
Sometimes we're naive and thinking, yeah, maybe, well, just if the years go by, they'll get nicer. They'll get softer. They'll get better. You know, many times with sinners, it's just the opposite. The older they get, the harder they get. And that's true of sinners. As they're given over into their own sin out of rebellion, and that's what happened with Herod. He got worse as he got older. And at the end of his life, which is where he's at now, he is at the worst point in his life as a tyrant and a vicious murderer and very suspicious regarding his throne and uh, consolidating power as the king. And he was a false, he was an illegitimate king. They, he was appointed by the Romans as king of the Jews and he wasn't even qualified because he wasn't a full-blooded Jew. He was partial Jew and he's partial Idumean or from the Edomites, from Esau, from a corrupted line of Jew haters all the way from Esau. That's who Herod was. He hated the Jews, yet he's king of the Jews. Through manipulation and bribery and whatever else and murder. So he's a false king. And so you've got this glorious, true king, Jesus Christ, contrasted all throughout this passage with the false king. Herod was so wicked and vicious at this time in his life before he died. Um, I mean, he was killing family members for quite some time. But he was so wicked. He, he killed his favorite wife. Think about that. Killed your favorite wife. Wow, what did you do with all the, your unfavorite wife? I hate, I hate to ask. Uh, he, he killed, towards the end of his life, his oldest son. When you're supposed to prize the oldest son as your next of heir. And he killed a lot more of his family members. Consolidated anybody that was a threat. Anybody that was a, a th- possible threat in the imagination of his twisted mind. So that's Herod. Herod the king. Herod the great. So those were the days in which Jesus was born. Behold, Magi from the east. Magi, plural for Magus. Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8. And Elymas the the Magus in Acts 13. Uh, Magus was a generic word and encompassed a category of a kind of person and even sometimes a profession. The Magi. They were often counselors to kings. Many times historically, they their place was in the court of the king. They they rubbed shoulders with royalty. And they were looked upon as wise men, as counselors. Uh, sometimes they had professions where they were scientists and dealt with the stars and they were astrologers. As a matter of fact, that's how the word is used in Daniel chapter 2. The Magi were astrologers and counselors to the king, to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so these Magi, these uh, royal elite Kingmakers from the east, over there in the east, that's the terminology. Really, uh, they were magi from the rising of the sun, which meant from the east of Israel. And it could have been three major areas known as the east. It could have been, they were magi from the area of Babylon, where Daniel was. Uh, the east was also Persia, which is modern day Iran, or Babylon, modern day Iraq, or also Arabia was referred to that, which is modern day Saudi Arabia. So somewhere over there, 500 miles away to the east of Israel is where these Magi came from, prestigious Magi, and there's a plural, they're called Magi, there's a plurality of them, and to travel 500 miles, uh, historically, it's probably likely that there were many of them, it could have been dozens of them and their entire entourage, and all of their camels and animals, and bringing all the necessary food to survive on a, a months and months long trip, let alone all these gifts that they come to bring as they try to hunt down this newborn king, so we're not looking at three Magi on three sickly, very tired, thirsty camels. We're looking at a massive entourage of royal kingmakers from the east to find the true king. That's the setting. This is historical. And they came from the east, arrived in Jerusalem, saying, and how in the world would these 
And they're probably pagans. They're probably, or Gentiles, I should say, non-Jews. They are non-Jews, 500 miles away, looking for a Jewish king. Why in the world would they be looking for him? And what blows my mind away is verse 2. They come to Jerusalem, their entire entourage. You can imagine Herod's uh, in his palace looking out the window, smoking a cigar, and then all of his servants around, and all of a sudden he hears this noise and he sees this huge, massive, intruding entourage entering into the city of Jerusalem, and he's in an instant panic. Who in the world are these people? Do they have a right? Do they have a pass to be here? Guards, where are you? Police, go find out who they are. That's probably what he did. He was threatened. But they were bold and courageous, and it's obvious that uh, the Magi, by virtue of what happened here, is they had access to King Herod. He was the authority there in Jerusalem over the Jews, and uh, they got an audience with the king. And so they went before the king or the influential Jews that are in that area, and they start asking questions and making statements that are pretty bold. In verse 2, uh, the Magi said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? I wonder what Herod was thinking when he first heard that. Oh, you're looking for me. He quickly found out they weren't looking for him. Uh-oh, immediate threat, immediate suspicion, immediate jealousy, immediate rage, immediate twisted plan in his mind to undermine this process as they're trying to find a vying, competing, rising star of a king that would usurp and take away the throne of Herod. That's what's going through his mind. And they're saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And get this, for we saw his star in the east. We saw his star. I was reading a commentary this week and Several of them, actually. few of them get it right, in my opinion. Well, uh, what was going on? The star was actually Jupiter. And it, we know from 7 BC, as we look back in history, that the stars lined up in the constellations. And at the vortex of the blah, blah, blah. And this, uh, no, I, I don't think so. It says uh, they saw his star. This is a specific star. It's literally just a light. They saw his light that was leading them. Jupiter, it couldn't have been Jupiter because it says the star went along. It led them specifically at a specific time in history for a specific purpose in fulfillment of prophecy. And that light ended up over literally residing over somebody's house. If Jupiter did that over your house, your house would burn down. This is his light. The same way in the Old Testament that God led his people through a burning light of fire through the desert to show them where he wanted to go. God does the same thing. A, a theophany. Uh, the, the Shekinah glory of God's light leading his people to the acquired or desired destination. That's what's going on. This is a supernatural light. It is His star. It's actually, it's actually prophetic too. Because in Numbers 20... I'll just read it to you. Uh, in Numbers 24, I believe this is fulfillment of Scripture. Uh, where God told uh, the people in the days of Moses in Israel that someday the Messiah would come and He's going to be magnified, exposed, revealed, showcased through a star. Numbers 24, Balaam, the false prophet that God spoke true through regarding the Messiah and the nation of Israel, Balaam, the false prophet, said this. It's true because God spoke through Balaam, the false prophet, to, uh, to judge him. And this is the, the truth that he spoke regarding the Messiah. By the way, this prophecy was 1,400 years before Christ was born. Here is the prophecy that came from God through the mouth of Balaam to the people of Israel. Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. In other words, uh, he's referring to someone who's going to be born in the future, the distant future, 1,400 years as a matter of fact. I see him, but not now. He is coming. Talking about the Messiah. Well, what about him? I behold him, but not near. He's not going to be born immediately, but not for a while. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A star shall come forth in Israel. A light shall appear miraculously. Wow. And a scepter shall rise from Israel. 
A supernatural light will be given by God in Israel to showcase the coming ruler and king, the Messiah. I see him not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel and he shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth and Edom shall be a possession. Boy, Edom, Herod was from Edom. The true king will come and he will be made known through a star. I believe this is his star. That's verse 2. For we saw his star. We saw the messianic star. We saw the prophetic star in the east, in the rising of the east where we lived. And we followed this star. We knew it was from God. We knew it was supernatural. It was different than all the other stars we've studied our whole life. It was his star. But the most amazing thing about this is the end of verse 2. You've got these Gentiles, possibly their background was pagan, we don't know, in the east, and it says, we came to follow the star, we came to find the king so that we can worship him. Well, why would they do that? Why would they be compelled to worship the coming Messiah who was a Jew? I don't know. I can only speculate that somehow they had been influenced by Old Testament Scripture that revealed for 4,000 years through countless prophecies that God would send a Savior who would be a Messiah from the loins of Abraham, who would be a Jew, who was God in the flesh, who was indeed to be worshipped by all humanity. It's the only conclusion I can make. And it could be that these magi from the East, whether it was Babylon or whatever, had over the years been influenced by Old Testament Scripture regarding prophecies of the Messiah. One of the reasons I believe that is Daniel chapter 2. But if you have your Bible and you want to flip to Daniel chapter 2, pretty amazing. 550 years before Christ was born, Daniel was taken from Israel and brought down into captivity in Babylon in modern-day Iraq under the evil, wicked Nebuchadnezzar, who eventually got saved, by the way. And Daniel became a prisoner on one hand, but he was also trained to be a leader in Nebuchadnezzar's court over time, and even he became a counselor. Daniel became a, He was captured as a teenager, and then he grew up and God providentially, sovereignly placed Daniel in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and other Babylonian kings, and Daniel grew in respect. And he became a counselor in the court of the king. And he assumed the title of Magi. Wise man. So in Daniel chapter 2, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. He had all kinds of weird dreams. And these they started to trouble him because he knew these weren't ordinary dreams. These were supernaturally given dreams, probably from some God. And he couldn't figure out the meaning of it, so he calls all of his wise men together, his counselors, his magicians, that's verse 2. He calls them all together. The magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans or astrologers. And all these wise men asking them, I need an interpretation of this dream. And if you tell me the dream, I will bless you. If you can't interpret the dream accurately, I will rip you from limb to limb. That's what it says. Limb to limb. Wow, yikes, middle of verse 5. Well, they couldn't interpret the dream. They heard the dream and they couldn't interpret it. And so they start fumbling and saying, well, King, what you're asking is impossible. Nobody can interpret this dream. It's, it's beyond our capabilities. And well, that didn't satisfy the king. He became indignant, Daniel 2, 12. He became furious, angry. He's going to follow through on that limb-to-limb promise. Because of this, the king Nebuchadnezzar became indignant and very furious and he gave orders to destroy all the wise men. About That's it, your, your history. You guys are all dead, every last one of you. Every wise man, every magi, every counselor, you're dead. Instant death. That was the death penalty instituted. So verse 13, so the decree went forth from Nebuchadnezzar that the wise men, the magi, should be slain, murdered, and they looked, and as a result, they looked for Daniel. Why? Because he was a wise man. He was a magi. They looked for Daniel and his friends because they also were magi and wise men to the king. We know that. 
from the text and also in verse 18 it says that Daniel's three friends, they were part of the wise men council. They were magi. They were counselors to the king. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Well, Daniel, God intervened. Daniel interpreted the dream. God blessed Daniel, protected him and his friends. And Daniel went on to live before the king and the following king and in the court of Babylon for five decades plus, 50 plus years. Daniel rose from being an obscure teenage Jewish slave to being second in command in the greatest empire on earth. Absolutely amazing. And through that entire time and that five decades of influences, Daniel was looked up to. And he was, he was looked up to, no doubt, by the guild of magi surrounding him, most of whom were probably total pagan Gentiles. And he earned this amazing reputation and many in fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, where God told Abraham the Jew, through you, through the Jews, you will bless other people. And in you, all the families of the earth, all the Gentiles of the earth will be blessed. That was fulfilled in the life of Daniel for 50 years. He was a Jew who blessed other people. He was a Jew that influenced other people for the creator of the universe. And no doubt, some of these magi, this guild, this school of magi around Daniel, they wanted to know the God of Daniel. They wanted to know about these miracles. They wanted to know about the unwavering faith of Daniel. And no doubt some of them embraced Yahweh, God of Daniel. And with Yahweh's God came, I mean, Daniel's God came Daniel's prophecies. And with Daniel's God came Daniel's scripture, which he possessed. And with Daniel's scripture came all these prophecies of the Messiah. And no doubt these magi were learned men and scientists and men of the book and men of detail and scrutiny. And they studied the Old Testament scriptures. And I am absolutely convinced that's how they found out about this coming one, this coming Messiah, this coming Jewish man who was a superhuman man who could conquer Satan and sin itself and who deserved the worship of all humanity. And this went on for four, five hundred years. And I think God in His grace preserved this remnant of aspiring, faithful, Gentile men who came to know the true God. They were known as God-fearers in the book of Acts. That's who I think the Magi are. Gentile believers from the East. Going back to Matthew chapter 2, that's what I think they knew. They knew a little bit from Scripture. So those were the Magi. They came to worship the new king. Verse 3, And when Herod the king heard about it, he was troubled. When Herod the king heard about it, he was threatened. When Herod the king heard about it, he was jealous. That's what it means. And all Jerusalem with him. It's interesting. Herod the king became troubled, and as a result, all Jerusalem was troubled. They weren't troubled for the same reason. All the people in Jerusalem were troubled because Herod was troubled. And they knew, wow, when Herod is mad and when he's furious, he is capricious, he is violent, and we are all vulnerable. you got the whole city in a state of panic because of Herod's jealousy. Verse 4. So, he's got a scheme. He's got a plan. So he gathers, Herod gathers together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. This is the leadership of the Jewish people. This is the ecclesiastical authority that reigns supreme in Jerusalem. He calls them all together to have a council. This is totally ironic because 40 years previously when Herod started his reign to consolidate power in Jerusalem, he slaughtered the Sanhedrin. One of his first acts of power, now 40 years later, he's calling them together as buddies. 
Oh, sorry what I did to your grandpa. He gathers them together, probably through an edict, maybe through coercion, who knows. The chief priests and scribes, that refers to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That's a lot of them. It could have been almost the entire Sanhedrin. Because it says all of them. These were the most informed, authoritative, Jewish, religious leaders. They were the masters of the Old Testament. If anybody knew anything about the Old Testament Messiah, when he was coming, where he was going to be born, it should have been the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish scribes, the Jewish priests. If anybody should have been rolling out the red carpet for Jesus the Messiah, it should have been them. So gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he began to inquire. Literally, he continued to inquire. He, he would not relent in inquiring and asking and pestering them over and over again. That's the tense that's used. And he's asking them where the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, Mashiach, the Old Testament word for king, legitimate king, ordained of God. That's what he's asking. Where is this? He uses their terminology. Where is this king to be born? The Messiah. Verse 5, And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So they do their due diligence. They search the Scriptures. They pool their knowledge. And they come up with the correct answer. According to our studies, according to the Old Testament Scriptures, and we are the scholars of the Old Testament, God has predicted that the Messiah will be born in the city of Bethlehem. And they give Herod the correct answer. Herod, king of the Jews who's the custodian of the religious uh, faith, doesn't even know this apparently, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But they do and they tell him that. Uh, and they say it. it's just kind of matter of fact. It's amazing to watch the, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees in this passage. They know the answer. Oh yeah, the Messiah, the coming king, the God-man. Uh, yeah, he'll be born in Bethlehem. Yeah, it's uh, six miles up the road, by the way. Keeping in mind that the Sanhedrin, the Jews and the Pharisees, their hub of activity and allegiance and loyalty was Jerusalem. It was the capital city. That's where the temple was. They controlled the temple. They had all of religious religion in the palm of their hand. So everything that was significant and important was in Jerusalem. Anything beyond that, they really didn't care about. And I don't care. I don't care if the God man is born six miles away, but that's where he's born. We're going to stay here in Jerusalem. It doesn't really affect us. I mean, that just seems to be their attitude. Indifferent, nonchalant, ho-hum. Matter of fact, we've got other priorities. But they did tell him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet Micah. You know about those prophets. You know, my descendant, they all, uh, my predecessor, they killed all those prophets. But anyway, uh, so they, here's the prophecy Matthew gives us. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. It was a significant town historically in Israel. David, David, the first king of Israel, first legitimate king, and the second king of Israel, but the first legitimate king from God's elected point of view, was born in Bethlehem. So David grew up in Bethlehem. He shepherded in Bethlehem. He spent much of his life in Bethlehem. That's why it became known as the city of David. Bethlehem was the city of David. Bethlehem, Beit Lehem, two, two Hebrew words. Beit, house, Lehem, bread, the house of bread. How appropriate that the bread of life, Jesus, the bread from heaven, would be born in the city of bread. And he was. And you, Bethlehem, a significant city even though it was small, for out of you shall come forth a ruler. See, there it is, king. And what will that king do? Well, he's not like an earthly, worldly king or a king like the tyrant uh, Herod. This king will be a shepherd. You know what shepherd means? Shepherd means pastor. I like that word. The imagery here. He, this king will be will fulfill Psalm 23. 
The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my pastor. He's not just a leader. He's a spiritual leader. The job of a pastor is to lead, to feed, to care, to protect. A personal, intimate caring, unlike any other leader. Caring for the soul. Caring for your personal life. Caring for your spiritual growth. That is the Messiah. That is Jesus. He's our shepherd. Next time somebody asks you, well, who's your pastor? Don't say McManus. Say Jesus. That's a better answer. Who's your pastor? Jesus. Yeah, pastor of my church, yeah, he's got problems. Mine doesn't. Mine's perfect. My pastor's perfect. His pastor, Jesus. He's the senior pastor, according to 1 Peter chapter 5. That's what it says. Jesus is the senior pastor of the church, chief shepherd. Verse 7, then Herod secretly called the Magi. So he's conniving. Secretly has a council. Calls the Magi. Psst. Ascertain, literally carefully act, trying to get accurate, detailed information from them. And he ascertained from them the time that this star appeared so he can calculate, figure out, okay, if the star appeared then, then the Messiah was probably born around then, which means within the last two years this baby was born, which means I'm going to make this decree that affects anybody two years and younger that's a male child in the vicinity here of Bethlehem, Jerusalem. That's exactly what he did. So he sends off the Magi to Bethlehem and he said to them, he lied and he said, go and make careful search for the child and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Lie. He wanted to kill him, not worship him. So anyway, that's Herod. Herod hates King Jesus. Point number two, nine through 11. Magi magnify the king. The Magi magnify the king. In contrast, Herod hates the king. The, mag the Magi magnify the king. They do what's appropriate. Verse 9 says, And having heard the king, King Herod, they went their way. So they did go to Bethlehem. And lo, get this, another important word, lo, lo and behold. Lo, get this, you'll never believe it. The star, the star, his star, that supernatural star, that prophetic star, that light, like we've never seen before, which they had seen in the east. It went on before them and was leading them, like I said, that pillar of fire in the Old Testament with the, the Israelites going through the desert. God's light. God is light. This light went on before them, very specifically leading them until it came and stood over where the child was. Supernatural indicator, verse 10. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They had arrived finally their destination. How glorious! And look at this response, verse 11. They came into the house, wherever they were, temporarily. They saw the child Jesus with his mother, not his father. Joseph is never called Jesus' father because he was born of a virgin. He didn't have a biological father. Jesus was with his mother and they fell down and they worshipped Jesus. There it is. That is the appropriate response. They fell down and they worshipped Jesus. That's what we do at Christmas. That's what we do in church today. As we sing songs, we worship Jesus. And Jesus, therefore, must be the only Savior. Jesus, therefore, must be God in a body. According to the Old Testament. And He is. They worshipped Him. Whenever I read a Christmas letter or whatever around Christmas, I can't quote a whole bunch of Scripture, I almost always put Matthew 2.11. Almost always. That's what it's about. Cut to the chase. It's a time to worship Jesus. He is the God-man. And opening their treasures... The Greek word is thesaurus for treasure, treasury of words. But the word was actually very specific. It literally meant casket. You ever see those plays on the Christmas story and they bring up the gifts and they're in these little uh, containers about a little Dixie cup? Here's the Magi with their three little Dixie cups. That's totally wrong. Here are the Magi. Here are the dozens of Magi with their caskets 
full of treasure for the king. That's what it means. Casket. Huge. Massive basket. And that's why some people think that maybe Joseph died early on and Mary was a widow and she didn't... They were probably poor anyway because when they did their offering in Luke, right after the birth of Messiah, they offered turtle doves, which was what poor people did. After that, the Magi came and God just blessed them beyond belief with these treasures of valuable, very important gifts that were incredibly valuable in terms of money that probably provided for Mary the rest of her life taken care of by God. God the provider, supernaturally. And they presented these caskets of gifts of gold, which is fit for a king, and the temple was just covered in the Old Testament with gold. That is where we worship God. That is the purest of the metals. Gold is fitting only for a king. Jesus is king. Frankincense, that was the kind of incense that the Levitical priest used and the high priest used to offer up sacrifices that were pleasing to God. Jesus is high priest. Presenting him frankincense. Myrrh, that's what you use to embalm and bury a dead body. Jesus is the sacrificial Savior. This is prophetic, even the three gifts they brought. He's the sacrificial Savior that will die for sinners. He is the high priest that will intercede on their behalf. He is given gold because He reigns as King of kings. Amazing. So that's the Magi who magnify the true King. Point number 3, 12 through 18, and that's the Father favors the King. Yet Herod hates the King. The Magi magnify the king, the Father in heaven. God the Father, He favors the king. He protects Jesus when He is vulnerable here and His family is vulnerable. He does it supernaturally as He intervenes providentially. Verse 12, and having been warned by God in a dream. Two or three times it says that uh, these people were warned by God of imminent danger. This is a supernatural intervention. Having been warned by God in a dream. Not to, don't use this passage to start trying to interpret all of your dreams thinking they came from God. Because most of your dreams, no, I'd say all of my dreams don't come from God. They come from last night's dinner, usually, or whatever. <laughs> this is a rare, one-time, supernatural, divine revelation from God in a unique situation that isn't a promise to keep repeating it and trying to figure out your dreams as though God's trying to tell you something. God doesn't speak through your dreams. He speaks through the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit who lives in you and through His people when they accord truth to you. But he did speak in dreams. As Hebrews 1 would say, in, in times past God spoke in various manners through dreams and other various ways. And he did it here. This is supernatural divine revelation from heaven. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed from their, for their own country by another direction, another way. We're not going back to Jerusalem. We're not going to go through the venue of Herod because he's probably going to kill us. And they were warned by God. So God is favoring them. He's favoring Jesus. He's favoring those surrounding Jesus. Verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, another behold. Get this. As Matthew's writing this, Matthew just keeps saying, get this, you'll never believe this. Get this. It really happened. So when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. So here's God protecting Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus. Go to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. We saw this in Revelation 12. Historically, we are told by historians that there has always been an enclave of Jewish people in every single city and town of Egypt of Jews. An enclave of, of Jews in Egypt all throughout history. 
in every single town and city. Isn't that amazing? So that when Joseph and Mary went to Egypt 2,000 years ago, they had a welcoming community of Jews in an enclave probably to take them in. Providentially put there by God. That's God's provision. That is God's providence. He puts people, according to Acts 17, exactly where He wants them for time and purpose to accomplish His will. So that was the dream. Verse 14, And so Joseph obeys. He was an obedient person. He arose and he took the child, Jesus, and his mother. Notice that terminology, very specific. It doesn't say he took his child, Jesus. It says he took the child. He took Jesus and Jesus' mother, Mary. He was born of a virgin. Joseph was not the biological father. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, which happened about 4 B.C., and that was spoke, which so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Hosea might be fulfilled, saying, "Out of Egypt did I call my son." A prophecy is specifically fulfilled, where God in the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah, who was almost synonymous with the nation of Israel at one point in history, would be saved by going into Egypt instead of being a slave of Egypt. How ironic! Prophecy being fulfilled. Jesus is the true Messiah, born in Bethlehem, fulfilling prophecy. Called into Egypt, fulfilling prophecy. Crying in Ramah, fulfilling prophecy. Growing up in Nazareth, fulfilling prophecy. These four geographic locations validating that Jesus was the true Messiah. Verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, that he had been connived by the Magi, they faked him out. All to the glory of God. They're just being obedient to God. He saw it as conniving, trickery had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. And he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and its environs or surroundings from two years old and under according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. He gives us the decree. This reminds us of the Pharaoh in Egypt who gave the decree to have all the Hebrew babies killed, slaughtered, thrown into the Nile. This is Satan at work through Herod. They think historically that could have meant anywhere from 20 to 50 little boys who were slaughtered. Verse 17, this was prophetic. God predicted this would happen. God didn't make it happen. God knew it would happen. God orchestrated, but God didn't do it. Evil did it. Satan did it. Verse 17, then that which was spoken uh, through Jeremiah 550 years before Christ the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah. What was Ramah? Ramah. Bethlehem was six miles south of Jerusalem. Six miles north of Jerusalem was a town called Ramah. Ramah was on the border of the northern Israel, or the, the northern territory of Israel, and on the southern territory of Israel. So Ramah is a word that summarizes the entire territory of Israel. It is all of Israel. That's what that means. A voice was heard in all of Israel. The people of Israel, the descendants of Israel. What voice? Weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. Who was Rachel? Rachel was one of the wives that was married to Jacob. Jacob changed his name to Israel. Rachel was married to the man named Israel. Israel had 12 sons who became the nation of Israel. And Rachel was the matriarch of the 12 sons who became the nation of Israel. So Rachel represents all the mothers of Israel and all the children of Israel throughout all time history. Rachel weeping for her children. This just means that the Jews and the, the mothers, the Jewish mothers of that day, were weeping on behalf of their babies who were being torn out of their arms and slaughtered on the spot. Rachel weeping. 
She refused to be comforted. How can you comfort somebody who has to endure that? Because they were no more. Nevertheless, the Father favors the King. He favors Jesus and protects Him from this onslaught of Herod and preserves the life of Jesus the Savior for our good and for God's glory, isn't it? And then finally, number four, that's the conclusion here. 19 through 23, prophecy protects the king. The father favors the king, but prophecy protects the king, 19 through 20. Uh, But when Herod was dead, oh, hallelujah. People wanted to celebrate when Herod died in his jurisdiction and area. But to ensure that people didn't celebrate and rejoice just before his death as he was getting sick, Herod decreed that a whole bunch of influential people that were well-liked in the community, in Jerusalem and its surrounding environs, should be arrested and locked up. And the moment he died, he ordered his henchmen to put every single one of them to death. So there'd be great weeping and wailing and sorrow and mourning at the time that Herod died. We know that from Josephus and historical records. That's how twisted he was in his mind. So when Herod was dead, behold, there's another behold. Man, you'll never get, get a load of this one. The Christmas story is a supernatural story, but it's true. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph again, saying, Arise and take the child, Jesus, and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life, they're dead. Herod and his people. So Joseph arose and he took the child and his mother, came into the land of Israel, stayed there for a while, probably went into Jerusalem, probably hiding out a little cautious at first. Then he got news. More bad news, verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, Archelaus was the most violent and wicked of all the sons of Herod. He was just as bloodthirsty. And Joseph knew that. That was the reputation of Archelaus. So Joseph, he panics. And for good reason. Archelaus is reigning in his dad's place. Yikes. He was afraid to go there. So being warned by God in a dream. So here's prophecy. Here's divine direct revelation protecting Jesus and His family once again. Giving them direction. Every step of the way. They walk the walk of faith. And being warned by God in a dream, He departed for the regions of Galilee going up north. And He came and resided or literally settled down and began to live and take up residency in this city called Nazareth. Which there was nothing significant about Nazareth. As a matter of fact, many Jews despised it because uh, sometimes it compromised and allowed Gentiles of all people to reside in the city and hang out there. But that's where they settled the land of Nazareth. In order that what was spoken through the prophets, plurality of prophets, many prophets all throughout the Old Testament, probably many living prophets who spoke prophecy, oral prophecy, not necessarily written down, but it was prophetic that the Messiah would be related to Nazareth somehow, uh, that was spoken through the prophets throughout history, might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. He shall be called a Nazarene. All that means is that Jesus grew up in Nazareth for 30 years. Then he had his public ministry. Then when he came to Jerusalem and proclaimed himself to be the Messiah and God, Sadducees and Pharisees didn't realize, that generation didn't realize that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. And so they said he's not fit to be king. He's not qualified because he wasn't born in the right place and he wasn't a resident of Jerusalem. And he's a Nazarene. So it was a term of derision. He's a pathetic Nazarene. He's not the Messiah. Little did they know about prophecy. But God used prophecy to protect our precious Savior Jesus the King. And in response, we've got three options. And I just challenge all of us and challenge you. How are you going to respond to Jesus? How do you respond? You've got one of three options. We see it in the text we just read. You can respond like one of three groups. You can respond like the priests and the scribes who with full knowledge 
who Jesus, the Messiah was and where he would be born and when he was born. And yet they had absolute total indifference to that reality. So that's the first response. People can hear the story of Jesus. They can know the truth. Culturally, they're kind of familiar with Jesus. And their response is deliberate indifference. It is deliberate. It's not ignorance. No, I don't. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, give me a little bit of Jesus. Okay, that's enough. Ooh, you're starting to make me uncomfortable. Oh, too many details. Conviction. Oh, guilt. No more. Give me the cultural Jesus. Deliberate indifference. That's how a lot of people can respond when they hear about what will you do with Jesus. You can respond with deliberate indifference and that will jeopardize the eternity of your soul. Or the second response to Jesus when you hear about Him is do what Herod did. And that's outright animosity. Outright animosity. That is deliberate, informed rejection of the truth of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He demands of you because you love your sin more than you love the Savior. That's what Jesus said in John 3. That also is not ignorance. That is blatant defiance. And there's plenty in our culture today that will do that. You tell them what Jesus requires and who He is, they get angry. They turn red. They'll call you names. Or there's the third response, and that's the right response. And that's to do what the Magi did. That's to do what these Gentiles did. Non-Jews. 500 miles over rough terrain, putting your life on the line to find out the truth about the Messiah. And when you do, you bow down in reverential worship. That's the third response, reverential worship. So where are you today, this Christmas season, about Jesus and answering that question asked so many times in the Gospels, who do men say that I am? The correct answer is, is He is God in a body who deserves our worship. He's the Savior of the world. He is the risen King. He's the one who's coming again to judge, to reign over all of earth and eventually all through eternity. That is the Christmas story. And that's the blessed good news for all of God's people. With that, let's go ahead and pray and thank God for this great news about Jesus. Father, we do thank You for the Christmas season and really a cultural opportunity You've given us to stop, to get our priorities right and to think about Jesus Christ. The meaning of His birth which extends to the meaning of His death. Jesus came to die. He came to die for sinners. We thank You that Jesus came to conquer the devil, to overcome hell, sin, death in the world on behalf of those who would be humbled by Your Spirit and turn to You, crying out for forgiveness of sin and salvation. Thank You, Jesus, that You guarantee that by living a perfect life, going to the cross, absorbing the wrath of the Father on our behalf as our substitute by rising again from the dead. And Lord Jesus, thank You that You live on high as high priest on behalf of Your body and as Lord of the universe, even today. And we give You our worship. We trust that it is pleasing to You. Now go before us, protect us, guide us. Thank You so much for the indwelling Holy Spirit who's been commissioned to do that by You. And may You be in the forefront of our thoughts all this day in this Christmas season. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.